Welcome to the Dunker Punks Podcast. If I said you were one in six, who would you be? If I said you were one in three, who would you be? If I said you were one of 2.2 million, who would you be? Stay tuned for this episode called Ban the Box, and you'll find out the answers and more. Now, for a little Dunker Punk mood music. I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. I don't want to be violent, don't want to have a vendetta, wanna be vengeful, no I don't wanna be a soldier Don't wanna be militaristic Don't wanna help that cycle I just wanna be A countercultural pacifist I don't wanna be a racist Don't wanna be a capitalist Don't wanna be sexist, no I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, beautiful, I want to be humble, I want to be progressive, I want to be open, I'm inspiration, I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao, I want to be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Valim, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, or Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just want to be me. Laura Weimer gives us some key statistics that might be a surprise to you, and she interviews Elizabeth Jones Valderrama, the executive director of OAR, which is short for Offender Aid and Restoration. We all have a lot to learn about boxes. Here's Laura. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode. My name is Laura Weimer and I started attending the Arlington Church of the Brethren right after I was born. And now, 22 and a half years later, I am still involved in the Arlington Church. I'm going to start out this podcast by giving some numbers and statistics. As you listen, think about what they might stand for. 2.2 million, 698, 1 in 6, 1 in 17, 1 in 3, and 4,781,300. 2.2 million stands for the number of people incarcerated in U.S. jails and prisons. 698. The United States' incarceration rate is 698 per 100,000, making the United States the largest incarcerator, even above countries like Rwanda, Russia, and China. 1 in 6. The lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for Latino male U.S. residents born in 2001 is 1 in 6. 1 in 17. The lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for white male U.S. residents born in 2001 is 1 in 17. 1 in 3. The lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for black male U.S. residents born in 2001 is 1 in 3. And finally, 4,781,300. This number stands for the fact that in 2012, 4,781,300 people in the United States 
were on probation or parole. The facts and statistics I just mentioned came from the sentencingproject.org website. All of these numbers highlight the large number of people involved in the criminal justice system and call out for sentencing and criminal justice reform. While, of course, we need to stop so many people from ever being involved in the criminal justice system and cut down on the numbers incarcerated in jails and prisons, this podcast will talk about what we can do with the vast number of people whose lives are already affected by being involved in the criminal justice system and what we can do to make transition from incarceration into the community smoother for the hundreds of thousands of people whose lives have forever been altered. It would seem that after a person is sentenced and completes their probation, parole, and or jail or prison time, they have paid their debt to society and don't face any more penalties. This, however, is not the case. I have been interested in criminology and criminal justice reform since I graduated high school four years ago. So, on a whim, I picked up Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Alexander powerfully talks about the racial disparities in arrests, incarceration, and trouble after incarceration, and highlights the parallels of the current incarceration and criminal justice system to Reconstruction and Jim Crow era laws. She talks about the legal, discriminatory practices that ex-offenders and people being released into the community face just because someone has a criminal record and has been incarcerated. Alexander goes more into depth about life after incarceration, but I wanted to briefly mention a few challenges, as mentioned by Alexander, that people face after being labeled a criminal or a felon. Even after people have paid their dues in prison or jail time, after being released from incarceration, people face restrictions on voting and the right to serve on a jury, both of which are fundamental rights in the United States. People can also face public housing discrimination because of their felony records, causing them to become homeless and possibly lose their children. With a criminal background or felony on their record, people may be discriminated against during the job hiring process and have trouble finding a job. In addition, a person's driver's license may be suspended, making it harder to get around and search for and maintain steady employment. People can also be barred from receiving food stamps and federal educational assistance. Because of the sheer number of people impacted by the criminal justice system and the numerous obstacles people have to overcome after returning home from incarceration, the problem may seem insurmountable. However, I have volunteered with an organization located in Arlington, Virginia, called Offender Aid and Restoration, or OAR for short. They are a nonprofit organization that works with people while they are in custody and also provides reentry services to people after they have been released from incarceration. I sat down with Elizabeth Jones Valderrama, the executive director of OAR, and asked her about the challenges people face when reintegrating back into the community and what OAR is currently doing to help. Here is our discussion. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. Um, could you tell us a little more about you and how you got involved in this work? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I actually am originally born in San Jose, Costa Rica in Central America, and I came to the United States when I was nine years old. So I came to this country uh, for the American dream, like many of our folks come out here to do, and that was in the 1980s. And I know now that in the 80s, there was about 700,000 people who were incarcerated in this country. And we now have a substantial number that is much larger. We're in the 2.2, 2.4 million people who are incarcerated in the United States. When I first got to the United States, I, I came to Arlington, Virginia, and I started going to a public school here. And I connected with a young man who just really befriended me and welcomed me into this country. And we connected. We went to school together. We graduated from high school together. And I decided I would go away for college. I went to the University of Virginia, and he stayed local. And when we went away, like it often happens with folks, you lose contact with your childhood friends. And so I kind of lost contact with him. I didn't know what happened. And I went away and I started working. Later on, I came back to work in the public school sector. And I started working in one of our public schools that was local. And we started getting a lot of an increase in the number of people who had children with parents who were incarcerated. And so I, that was really kind of my first connection to this mission and to really understand that there, 
that this happens in this country and in many countries and parts of the world, really. But that was my original experience after I had graduated from college. So I started and I looked at this organization that uh, it's called OAR, Offender Aid and Restoration in Arlington, Alexandria and Falls Church, Virginia. And I got excited about them and I started working here. And that was in 2005. In 2010, I went to one of our local correction facilities, so sort of like a prison here in Virginia. And when I was doing a presentation about the work that we did, I had a person who called my name after the presentation, and it turned out to be my childhood friend. So at that moment, it really impacted me, and I didn't get a chance to talk with my friend about why he was there, what had happened, and I just remember how critical it was for me in that moment. And I just know that people who are incarcerated, many of them are good people, kind people who make mistakes and um, end up in a situation like an incarceration situation. So I mentioned now that when I came here, there was about 700,000 people and now there's over 2 million, 2.2, 2.4 million. And there's several reasons why that happened. And so I want to talk a little bit more about the increase of incarceration and why that's happened. And there's really lots of reasons, but um, one of the reasons is in the 70s, as you know, there was a push to close, 70s and 80s, there was a push to close a lot of the mental health institutions. And so that was a, a good idea. And uh, the good thing about it was that there was a lot of things that were that were not good that were happening in the institutions, but uh, and so we needed to get folks out of there. But the problem was that there wasn't a plan for folks when they got out, and so many people ended up in the streets, and many people ended up incarcerated. And incarceration is not the place for our folks who have a mental health um, situation to be in. So that's one reason. Another reason is the idea of the mandatory uh, guidelines, the sentencing guidelines. Now we've come away from mandatory sentencing guidelines, which is when a judge says, regardless of why you've committed a certain crime, you're going to get X, Y, and Z sentence. We've come away from that, and we're now using more, we're using them more as actual guidelines rather than mandatory sentencing. Another piece was when uh, the three strikes you're out rule happened and Virginia, which is the state we're in, still does have a three strikes you're out rule. And then the last piece I do want to mention is the whole concept of this war on drugs. And so there was a, an idea of war on drugs, which we recently found out from some articles um, that it wasn't really the war on the drugs themselves, but it was really kind of war on people. And so um, if you recall, the war on drugs started in the Nixon administration. And one of his top advisors just came out recently and talked about the fact that the reason why they implemented this war on drugs was so that they can really police the individuals who were using the drugs, not because it was a safety hazard, but because they wanted to make it illegal to be who they were. And many of those were folks who happened to be people of color. So we have an increase of amount and a substantial number of people of color who are incarcerated today. Um, so could you tell us some things people might not know about the criminal justice system and the people who are impacted by it? Absolutely. So I think one of the things that's really important is to know the difference between jails and prisons. Um, and I often get that question, and so I'd love to share that with you. So traditionally, there are local jails and regional jails, and there's also state and federal um, prisons. And so one of the differences is that folks who are sentenced for uh, less than a year or a year and, and a day less can stay in the local jails for that time and serve their sentencing. So I'll give you an example. In our local two jails that we have here, we have a uh, a number of people who are waiting to be sentenced, so they were arrested, they're waiting to be sentenced, so that's a group of people. They've been sentenced to less than a year, or they're awaiting transfer, or they're awaiting deportation. So a jail system is kind of, it's very transient. There's a lot of movement happening. And um, in the facility that's closest to us, there's really, the majority of the stay for a person is less than 30 days. Um, in the Northern Virginia area, which is where we are, we have so much movement from the D.C., and Maryland, and other locations that the majority of the folks who are incarcerated in our local jails are really not actually from the local jurisdictions. They're from other parts of the state. So that's a challenge that we face here as well when it comes to programming. On the prisons, on the other hand, most of the folks there 
are serving their time already, which means that if they're sentenced to, you know, a year and a day or two more, they're already doing their time there. So there's a lot more stable. There's a lot more freedom, I guess, for the clients and the people who are incarcerated as well um, in those facilities. And so they have a lot more structure that is a structure that allows them to be able to live their lives on a longer set of, um, of time that they're doing. So that's a big difference. Another thing that I think it's important, uh, that is been, that we're studying now more often than, than before is this concept of trauma. And so I can say without, without a doubt that incarceration is extremely traumatic so the first time around, incarceration is traumatic. So we really want to limit the amount of time that people, we want to limit the, the fact that the people go to jail, right? So we don't want people to go to be incarcerated as much as we can. But there's research out there that says that once you go in once, if you go in a second or third time, it's almost impossible for you to succeed. So we really need to limit those interactions as well in the future. But in addition to the trauma of incarceration, there's also going back into the history of the person, there's also a lot of childhood traumas. So there's something out there that we're looking at that's called childhood adverse childhood experiences. So it's ACE, ACE. And the idea behind this is that there's about 10 questions that you can have in a conversation with someone and ask them. And so if you answer yes to one of those questions, you get a one. If you answer no, you get a zero. And one of the things that they're finding is that people who are incarcerated in juvenile facilities, detentions, et cetera, or in prisons, the majority of those people, if not all, have at least five or more ACEs of a, a higher ACE score. So it's almost like you can predict the fact that someone's going to be incarcerated based on the number of, of ACEs they have in their childhood. And so it's, a, it's an interesting piece to look at. And I think it's important because it changes the way that you uh, look at people when you are working with people. And the majority of the world has at least one or two ones or one or two ACEs in their scores. But when you're looking at being at a score of six, eight, or nine, that not only affects you in the terms of the way you live your life, it changes your brain composition and changes your health, et cetera. So that's, um, that's something that we're looking at. So I think that's really critical. The other thing I want to mention is, and you heard me mention a second ago, about the fact that we have a substantial amount of people who are people of color who are incarcerated in this country. So um, the Sentencing Project, which is a local D.C. area uh, organization that does an incredible uh, amount of research and a great job with uh, really communicating information out to the community about incarceration, just came out in 2016 with a report on incarceration rates, specifically of people who are black and people who classify themselves as Hispanic in comparison to uh, whites. And so they use the census data and um, also then analyze anybody who was in state prisons. So that's not jails, as we talked about a second ago, or federal prisons, that's specifically state prisons. And one of the numbers specifically for Virginia that came out was that the census in Virginia says that people in Virginia classify themselves 19% of the population as black. So 19% of the population in Virginia classify themselves as black, but there are 58% of people who are in prison and state prisons who are actually black. So that's a substantial number. So that's Virginia. Maryland, for example, 29% of people classify themselves as black, yet 72% of the population that are in prison are black. Louisiana is number two with 32% classifying as black in the census, 67% people who are black in prison. And so you can just go through all those numbers um, with Maryland topping the list, unfortunately, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Georgia, New Jersey, Alabama, Delaware, Illinois, and Virginia. And it's just not a list that you want to be topping on. Um, so I know we've like mentioned a lot about people in um, jail and prison, could we talk about some of the challenges people face um, after they've been involved with the criminal justice system um, and or like when they're returning into the community from prison or jail? Absolutely. So one of the pieces that I think it's really important for folks to know is that um, 
when you're incarcerated, it can be very shameful for people. So there's a whole lot of shame that's happening when you're incarcerated. And I'm not just talking about the actual person, but I'm talking about their family member. Um, there's a lot of disconnect there as well. So if you can picture yourself being a child of someone or a spouse of someone who's no longer there. So there's a lot of destabilization of the family when a person is incarcerated. So if you were a breadwinner and you're no longer the breadwinner, now all of a sudden your family has to figure out how to support themselves. And so that is a really difficult thing for the family. Um, so within, while a person is incarcerated, I think there's also a lot of loss of connections among family members. So those are many challenges while you're inside. On the outside, though, is that when you come out of incarceration, you're coming home and you've completed your sentence, you still have that on your record. It's on your criminal record. And it's not like a bankruptcy, for example, that comes off your record after 7, 10, 13 years. This is on your record for the rest of your life. And so that means that when someone goes, look, goes to look for housing or goes to look for employment or goes to open up a credit card, they're able to pull not just your credit report, but also pull your criminal background and do a criminal background check on you. And that is on your report. So it affects you not just while you're incarcerated, but also for the rest of your life. And so some of this, unfortunately, becomes like many of our folks who are affected, they'll say it's a lifetime sentence. And I think that's really a difficult, very difficult piece. So there's employers out here who don't want to hire individuals who have a criminal record who don't want to give a second chance. There are apartment buildings who don't want to let folks live in those apartment buildings um, for whatever reason. So that's for folks who've already completed all of this. Now imagine if you also, in addition, you come home and you have probation. So then you also have to figure out how to juggle um, being able to go into probation and going to the appointments as well as going into treatment uh, as well as reestablishing your credit. So all of that is happening and luckily locally we have an incredible partnership with our probation officers and our jails and our prison system and the Department of Corrections here but I know that there are some other states that don't have that and so there is an incredible struggle from those individuals who are coming home to be able to reconnect um, and, and do that. And I think one of the biggest pieces, too, is that um, our folks lose a lot of connections, not just while they're inside, but on the outside. If they've kind of broken up their many bridges with their family members and friends, reestablishing those are really keys to people being able to stay out of incarceration. And so what programs or services does OER or Offender Aid and Restoration currently provide for people who have been involved with the criminal justice system or who are returning to the community? Yes, so we're really excited about the work that we're doing here in OAR. Um, that's, we serve Arlington, Alexandria, and the city of Falls Church. And we've been around since 1974 in Virginia. And we have kind of three areas that we say we'd like to, to do our work in. And one of them is, for example, community service, and that is court-mandated community service through Arlington County and City of Falls Church Courts. And so what we do there, and we really are excited about that program because it's an alternative, alternative sentencing program. And so what happens is a judge will say, you know, instead of going into jail or going to, you know, incarceration, why don't you go ahead and partner with OAR and I'll sentence you to do community service hours in the community. So we really like that model because, as you heard me mention a second ago, you don't break those ties, you don't break that community, you're able to keep your job, you're able to stay with your family, you're able to continue to, you know, raise your children if you have them together, um, and you're still able to contribute back to the community, continue to pay taxes, etc. And so that's really critical, and that's important. And so we have a pro we have a whole program and department that works in that area. We serve about 1,800 people in a given year in that area. And together, all of those folks who come through that program provide over um, $3.3 million worth of hours of value to the community. So that is an incredible amount of support for the government agencies, faith communities, and nonprofits that, that receive that assistance from volunteers. So that's one area. 
Um, our second area is our life skills programs that are inside our local facilities. So those primarily are working with our volunteers who are going in to do different courses that are life skills, which are really important because not only are you learning a new skill, but one of the pieces with regards to trauma and how to combat that is to develop the resiliency factor, to, to develop resiliency. And so one of the ways you do that is to learn something new and to develop more of your self-esteem. And so through these courses, you're able to do that. Um, so we have courses such as parenting, computers, money management, math for trades, uh, how to start your own business. And then you have things like yoga and you have things like creative arts and creative writing. And so all of those things give you, all of those courses give you new skills, but again, also give you time to focus on something that's not incarceration. And we have a great partnership with our local facilities to do that around here. And then the third part of our program is what we call reentry. And so reentry, we do believe, begins on the inside. And so we begin programming on the inside with some of our clients. And reentry is divided kind of into three areas. We have our pre-release work that we're working with individuals who are coming out, who are medium to high risk of reoffending. So we have a really targeted, evidence-based, intensive program that works with individuals who are medium to high risk. And we begin pre-release, so before someone comes home, and work with them throughout their post-release career, so after their release, so that we can be there and work with them intensively. We also work with individuals on an emergency basis. So imagine you were incarcerated in the summertime and you come home in the wintertime and all you have is flip-flops and shorts and a tank top and it's minus 30 degrees. So how do you get home? What do you eat? What do you wear? What kind of suits do you get for jobs? All of those things are things that we support individuals with when they come to visit us on an emergency basis. Shelter is also really important. Referrals. Then the other area we work with is employment. Employment is really critical, not just for being able to sustain yourself, but also for your self-esteem. And so we have a whole employment program that works with individuals to be able to work on their resume, to be able to really translate that experience while they were incarcerated into valuable experience that employers are going to be able to relate to, and to develop a, a disclosure statement is what we call it, to talk about your charges, the reason why it happened, who you were then and where you are today. So that is really the the segment of population that we work with at OAR. And um, so could you touch a little bit on why successful reentry is so important? I know you talked a lot about um, some of the work OAR does helping with pe people reenter society. Um, why is that so important? Well, I think there's many reasons why this is important, but you heard me mention 2.2, 2.4 million people are incarcerated every year we have 650,000 people who come home from incarceration. And the statistics show that without supportive programming like the one that folks receive at OAR, 66% of them are gonna go back to incarceration within three years. Just from that statistic alone, it's critical if you're thinking from a from a financial standpoint, incarceration, vary, it varies by state, but incarceration costs at least $25,000 per person for one year. That's if you're a healthy person, if you are a person without uh, need of additional medical support, mental health support, substance abuse support, etc. So $25,000 per person. That is a lot of money if you're thinking about the number of people who are incarcerated. So if every year folks are going back at 66%, just at a cost savings process, that is huge. On a human capital process, that's a whole other conversation. When a person is incarcerated, we are losing out on the gifts that that person has to give the community. We're losing out on the excitement, on the joy, on the skills that that person has. And we are no longer a full community when someone's gone. So the reality is that Folks who are incarcerated have a lot to give, a lot of skills, and, and when they're not here, we're missing out. So that's another reason. And third, when, when folks are incarcerated, we want people to come back home in a, in a healthier place in their lives. 
And that is just as a human nature, something that we want to do. You know, I know we talked about faith communities, you know, that's in scripture. Um, And we want individuals to be able to restore themselves and come home and help us be better people. And so the programming is critical for the public safety for the tax paying, for the financial, but really for the individuals to be able to come home and, and be able to show us how to be better people too. Ian, I know you guys, I know OAR has helped so many clients over the years. Could you give us a couple stories um, of clients that OAR has helped and sort of how OAR has helped transform their lives? Absolutely. So I'd like to tell you a story and I won't use this person's uh, first name only. Um, His name is Joe. And so Joe came to us after 18 years of incarceration and he um, had been in prison for the majority of those 18 years. And then he served his last year here in one of our local facilities. And so when he came out, he went to the shelter system and he didn't know what to do. And so somebody's told him about OAR and the work that we were doing. So he walked over. Um, we're really close to our local shelter. He walked over and started talking to one of the case managers about what he wanted to do, what he needed to do. He happened to be a veteran. And so there were some benefits that he could receive. So one of our team members began working with him on those benefits. And we talked about what his dream was and we talked about what he wanted to do. And that's one of the biggest pieces that OAR that I think is really important is that you really want to be in a place where you're on a journey with the individual and you're not there as the case manager. You're not there as a, I know what's best for you. You're there as a, tell me what has worked for you in the past and let's make that happen. And tell me what your goals are and let's make that happen. And so his goal was to go to school. He wanted to get an associate's degree. And so we have an incredible community college nearby and we were able to partner with the community college and he was able to go to the community college because we had a grant and we were able to give, get a grant. He went to the community college. He found a, We found a place to live for him. He started doing part-time work. Um, once he was in the community college, he was really excelling in his classes. And so one of the instructors, the professors asked him to be a peer-to-peer student teacher. So he got a job at one of the community at the community college where he was also studying. So he also received some uh, financial support there. So in the last three months, he actually just graduated. And he sent us his picture with his cap and gown. And one of the amazing things about our local community college is that you can now enroll into a program that's in one of the four-year universities, like a UVA or Marymount or George Mason, et cetera. And so he's now going to enroll there. And so now his next goal is to move on to get a bachelor's degree. So in his sense, he really just wanted to work, but really wanted to get an educational uh, career. And so he's been able to live that dream. One of the things he said to me when he came to show us the pictures about with his cap and gown, and he said this before, is that we were able to support him by getting a place to live. And he said he's never had a place of his own before, but he had his own key. And so the first day he got his own key, he opened the door and he just thought, wow, this is my place. So he's living in an apartment and it's his place where he has a key and he has a balcony and the balcony overlooks like a little pond and there's a little tree there. And he said, he just sits out in the balcony and looks at the pond and, and says, I can't believe this is my life now after 18 years of incarceration. So that is a powerful story. One other one I want to tell you is we had a a young woman who came to us and she really, when she was in prison, did a lot of work in horticultural work. And so she learned how to do lawns and how to do um, different arrangements and all of that with flowers and with plants, et cetera. And so she found that she really loved that. And she has She had two young kids when she went in and decided that she really wanted to be different this time around. So when she came home, she said, you know, I want to work for a company that does this kind of work. And unfortunately, she applied and applied and applied and didn't find anyone who would hire her because of her background. So we came up with an idea. How about we start her? How about she start her own horticultural company? 
And she at first was really nervous, but decided that she would try. And so we helped her. We supported her with her documents to get that. She started her own horticultural company. And she had a scooter uh, that she had to drive. And one of the things that I think I should have mentioned earlier, too, is that when folks are still on probation, many of them are not able to get a driver's license. And so there's a whole it's tricky as to how you can get from places to places for work, et cetera. So in her case, she couldn't get a driver's license, but she could drive a scooter. So she was running her whole horticultural business out of the back of her scooter. And um, she ultimately got her first client through one of our connections in our faith communities, actually. And she did a fantastic job. And they spoke to someone who spoke to someone who spoke to someone. And now she has clients. And not only does she have clients, she hires some of our folks who are reentering also to work with her. So we have a person right here who was super motivated, got super passionate about this work, is showing her children how different she is today than where she was before, how much she can give back. She's giving back to the community and she's giving back to folks who were in the same place she was a few years later. So that is an incredible story. And and we were there to support her. But as I mentioned before, we're just there to be on the journey with people and we're happy that we can do that. Wow, thank you so much for sharing those stories. Um, so now what can individuals people of faith and faith communities and other organizations do to help people involved in the criminal justice system and to help people who are re-entering the community have a more successful re-entry. So there's many things that folks can do. Um, one of the biggest things that, that people can do is to really get out there and learn about this issue. I think, um, before anything happens, you want to make sure you learn about the issue. You want to make sure you know the difference between, you know, can a person vote in your state? Can a person not when they come home? Is that okay? Should they be able to vote? Should they not? And why do you think that? So being able to learn about that, being able to uh, to really understand the issues that folks are experiencing, being able to really comprehend um the way that the system impacts people's lives, I think it's also really important. So getting all that data and getting some of those intricacies, I think is really critical. Um, once you have some information, I think it's really important to advocate. So I really think it's important to be out there doing advocacy, not just within the legislator about the overall sentencing and sentencing reform, which I think is really critical, but in addition to that, to really talk to, you know, in a faith community, to really talk to your parishioners um, as an individual, to really talk among your friends and family and your community about how we can welcome people home, about what kind of environment we want to have when folks are coming home. The reality is that when people are sentenced, they complete their sentence and they come home and they finish everything that they're being required to do. Can't they, shouldn't they, just be able to come home and have the same experiences like you or like me. Why should somebody suffer as after and for many years they've already completed everything that they've needed to do? And so there's an incredible amount of bias as well. And there's an incredible amount of, um, I think, discomfort with individuals. When you see someone in the, uh, on the street and you don't know that they've been incarcerated, you might completely have a conversation without any issue. But as soon as some of our team, uh, some of our um, folks, participants who've come through our program start telling their story, you can tell that people are not comfortable anymore. And so the reality is that our people look just like you and me. Our people have experiences just like you and me. We have PhDs. We have people who have... Um, not PhDs, we have masters, we have bachelor's degree associates, just like everyone in the community. So it's a very, it's a reflection of all of that. And they have talents and they have skills and they deserve second chances. And the reality is that until those biases go away and until we really become a community that's going to be inclusive for all, the work that we do as a direct service is great. But if they come home, if individuals are coming home to a community that's not going to welcome them and accept them, then 
I don't think we've done our job. And that would be what I think people should do. I think people should find out about their local reentry programs, their local community service programs, and really connect to them. Go see what they're doing. Find out how they're doing it. Talk about their evidence-based practices that they're doing and see how you can help. Sometimes you can volunteer. Sometimes you can um, volunteer in ways like talking to the clients, but sometimes you can do administrative support in their offices, and that's substantial as well. Um, and of course, you can support financially. I mean, there's a lot of need for reentry as more and more people are coming home. You heard me say 650,000 people come home every year. The reentry programs and the folks who are coming home and getting those supports need to be supported properly. And so financial resources are really critical for those organizations and those nonprofits and faith-based. Um, so there's just a lot of things that people can do. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention is our OAR's vision. So our vision for this community, for this world, is as follows. OAR envisions a safe and thriving community where those impacted by the criminal justice system enjoy equal civil and human rights. And so the idea is that, yes, people have committed a crime. Yes, the judge and the community and, and whoever have sentenced them. Yes, they've completed that sentence. Now they need to be able to come home and enjoy the equal human civil rights that all of us have. And that's just the right thing to do. It's the, it's the, the human thing to do. And that's really what's critical for us. Um, and I think creating that community for the world that you're in and your friends and family and your parishioners is critical. Um, so I would really challenge individuals to go out there and learn more about this issue and to really understand that this issue is ingrained in um, some injustice that's happened for a long time to people who are coming from backgrounds of color. And I think that is also really painful to know as a person of color or as a person who isn't, and to really develop those ideas as well. So I know there's a lot of resources out there. And one of the quotes that really resonates with me that I'd love to share is one by Brian Stevenson. And he's an author and he's just a brilliant speaker. But one of the quotes he's used in the past is the, and I'll paraphrase, is the idea that um, individuals are more than their worst mistakes. And if you think about yourself and if you think about the mistakes you've made, I don't think any of us want to ever be remembered only by our worst mistakes. So in many communities in the United States, there's been a movement called Ban the Box. And the idea is that when a person goes to apply for a job, the application has a little box on there that says, depending on where you're applying to, have you been incarcerated or have you ever been arrested or do you have a felony record or do you have a misdemeanor, etc. And so the movement is that we really need to remove that box from the application to allow for individuals to fill it out and to turn it in. There's been research that says that when the box is there, even though a person can check it and explain what's happened, people tend to not do it. They get demoralized and they decide not to do it. And in addition to that, it shows that in 50% of the cases, the HR manager or the specialist who's looking at the employment applications tends to push those to the side, no matter how qualified the applicant is. So the movement for Ban the Box is, let's take the box, let's take that from the application, allow the person who's qualified to come in to have a conversation with you. If you are excited about this person, if you think that this person is going to be a qualified applicant, during the interview, talk with that person about do you have a criminal history? Do you have any charges I should be aware of? Which is perfectly legal to have a conversation during the interview to do. And have a discussion about that with that person. 
And then as the employer, you can make the decision as to whether that specific charge relates to the job that you are hiring for. And so that allows you to not miss the human capital that we have. And it's really a, a way to increase the number of applicants that you have in the pool. Because if you solely go by the people who don't check that box, then you're missing an incredible number of really qualified applicants. And the research shows that individuals who are on probation or individuals who come home and you give them a second chance as an employer are going to be incredibly loyal to you. Those who are ready to work for you are going to be incredibly loyal to you and are going to do what's best for the company. So you really kind of want to look for those individuals as well. chance. How many times in your life have you needed a second chance? And then there's those spots of regret where I never got a second chance. We don't need to look far into the life of Jesus to find the places he gave people another chance and another life. Mostly he gave people another way of living. I have friends who have to check the box when they fill out a job application. Other times I've worked to register people to vote, only to have someone say, I can't vote. How do we hope to restore people to life, abundant life, Jesus would say, when we don't offer basic rights to housing, employment, or even voting after someone has a conviction or has been in prison? The statistics Laura shared really sat me back in surprise. I, I'm not really sure what to say about how I feel. Let's hear those numbers again. 2.2 million stands for the number of people incarcerated in U.S. jails and prisons. 698. The United States' incarceration rate is 698 per 100,000, making the United States the largest incarcerator, even above countries like Rwanda, Russia, and China. One in six, the lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for Latino male U.S. residents born in 2001 is one in six. One in 17, the lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for white male U.S. residents born in 2001 is one in 17. One in three, the lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for black male U.S. residents born in 2001 is one in three. And finally, 4,781,300. This number stands for the fact that in 2012, 4,781,300 people in the United States were on probation or parole. Certainly I speak from a place of white privilege, but I don't need to view the world only from here. I do need to be aware of how much the privilege affects my view of opportunity for others. It only takes listening to these numbers to make me realize what I don't see. Do you remember the story of the king that Jesus told? It's in Matthew 25 at the end of a chapter of parables. Jesus is talking about a judgment when all the nations and people are gathered in front of him to be separated as a shepherd of his day would separate the grazing animals before him, sheep on one side, goats on another. What is most interesting is that the people on each side don't know why they're there. Here's a few verses. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who will receive good things from my father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and give you clothes to wear? 
When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. When do we see the image of Jesus as a stranger in need of clothing or sick or in prison? This is where my position of privilege keeps me from seeing those I should be reaching out to help. Clearly, I need to do everything I can to help. This is an episode where action can take several forms. Information about the movement to ban the box can be found at nelp.org. That's N as in Nancy, N-E-L-P.org. Over 100 cities and counties have adopted what is widely known as ban the box so that employers consider a job candidate's qualifications first without the stigma of a criminal record. I suggest you find out what organizations are doing in your area. OAR is based in Virginia. You can find them at oaronline.org. Why don't you search as soon as you put this podcast down to see what organizations are doing in your area. Then let us know. We will share that information with others who listen to the Dunker Punks podcast. It is certainly time we all started paying more attention to the places we meet Jesus and the people in whom we see Jesus. Surely we who follow him don't want to miss an opportunity like that. And thank you, Laura and Elizabeth, for raising our awareness, for helping us see our positions of privilege, and for challenging us to be part of the solution in the Jesus way. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Dunker Punks podcast. I'm your co-host, Nancy Fitzgerald, pastor at the Arlington Church of the Brethren. Jacob Krause and Suzanne Lay edit our audio, and Jacob gifts us with his music. We are blessed with a dozen contributors who share audio about their passionate work for Jesus. God of all creation, give us open ears and soft hearts to hear this call to action and to respond. It takes a little more courage to reach out to the people who are already helping and to those in prison and those released. So grant us the courage and energy we need to see your face in theirs. We pray this as your humble and faithful followers. Give us ever more faith as we grow. Amen. Now go in the light and in the love of Jesus, Dunker Punks. <laughs>